Now, if you're following along with us, and by no means do I assume that you are, even if you've been present with us, but if you have, you you probably notice uh, that last week, Palm Sunday, I preached on resurrection and the, the resurrection God that we have and we celebrate. At the beginning of March, the first Sunday in March, I preached a Palm Sunday message to surprise everyone as we came in with palm branches and uh, everyone was nervous that Easter was coming extra early that year. And here we are on Easter, and I'm not preaching directly on resurrection, but the reason for resurrection. And back to the passage that we looked at two weeks ago when Mark Lauren and I uh, preached on this passage of love. And I do think it's a worthy message to hear yet again. But with all of that, you may be scratching your head or shaking your head or for or hand to forehead. And if so, that's okay. Then that means your head is engaged. And now it's time to engage our heart to this. Easter Sunday is all about love. Love comes first. It's the reason for the crucifixion. It's the reason for the resurrection because it's the reason for all of life. Love inspires resurrection, God's love for us. It's the most important thing of all. So shouldn't we be focused on that, on this day and every day? The most important thing of all. I was cautioned early on in my preaching ministry to be very careful with superlatives. This is the most important thing. This is the greatest thing. This is the most urgent thing for us to do today, this week, now. And so I've kept that. I've held that. So with full awareness and consciousness, I say there is nothing greater in all the world than love. First, God's love, then inspired by, filled by his love, ours in response, ours in return. We can confidently use superlatives around this theme because Jesus does. That's his answer. That's what we heard him say. The most important thing is this, Jesus said. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love, love the Lord your God with heart, soul, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. So Jesus, you use the superlative, so should we. Now another reason we're out of order, so to speak, is that we're working our way through the gospel according to Mark. We have been for a fair bit of time. We're not in a hurry to go past who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he teaches us. That's all of life. So we're working our way through and letting Mark, this author of the gospel, determine our timeline. And it's coming up to the time of his crucifixion in the story. In Mark chapter 12, it's the shortest of the gospel accounts. It's, it's, it's pretty power-packed with, with emotion and, and change and urgency. Jesus has been in Jerusalem this final week of his life before rising again. For the last few chapters, they're recording his encounters and his ministry in Jerusalem and really up against the religious leaders of the day, uh, the, the, the Jewish leaders known as the, the Pharisees or the Sadducees. There were these different groups or sects with slightly different beliefs, but they made up what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest court in, in the land amongst, amongst the Jewish people. They determined uh, what was good and right and holy. They, they determined the, the calendar of events for uh, God's people. They, they, they judged in uh, civil and personal disputes. It was, a, it was a large body. The Sanhedrin did not 
appreciate Jesus. Jesus was this young-ish, 33-ish-year-old upstart rabbi who was fairly subversive. They were calling him an insurrectionist. Perhaps he was. He was coming to bring the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God, but he was not doing so through aggression or force, but through love and compassion, through service, through sacrifice. But in so doing, he was saying all of this structure, all of this authority, even the temple itself, uh, have been, become corrupted and must be removed for the kingdom of God to fully come. So they did not appreciate Jesus, but many of the people did. And there were crowds of people that would flock to Jesus. He was ministering to people. He was feeding them literally and spiritually. He was healing them and delivering them. So there was this huge fanfare coming after Jesus. And the Pharisees were used, and the, and the religious leaders were used to that attention and authority. And he was taking it away. He, he had an authority that everyone saw and realized from like the moment that they heard him speak or teach or interact, even with those in power, he seemed to have a deeper authority. And they did not like that. That meant their authority was being taken or removed or compromised. So at this point, they're looking for any way that they can trap him, arrest him, remove him from the scene. That's ultimately what will lead to his arrest and crucifixion, when they've tried every other method. Because up to this point, they're simply interacting with him in front of the crowds, trying to get him to say something that would be unpopular, that the crowds would question, would walk away from. And even the most recent challenge that we looked at last week, they, they pinpointed the, the primary issue. Jesus had repeatedly been teaching more privately that he would be crucified and in three days rise from the dead. The Sadducees, who believed there was no afterlife, came and challenged Jesus, thinking that if they could get him to publicly announce his belief in resurrection, and not only that, but his own resurrection, nobody would believe him. Everyone would dismiss him as a lunatic and maybe walk away from him and they could have their order returned. But the Sadducees weren't the only ones that were challenging him and trying to, to get him removed. And so that's, that's the context of where we find this passage. Again and again, Jesus is being questioned and challenged, and he rises to the occasion in brilliance, as he always does. So he's been interlocking with these leaders, these chief priests, these high teachers, and here comes another one. Uh, some texts call him a lawyer, a high teacher, or a rabbi, an expert in the law. So he knew all things Hebrew scriptures. When they say the law, they meant primarily those first five books that we even have in our Bible today, the Hebrew scriptures, the books called the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, where there's hundreds of commandments given down for God's people. So here is an expert in the law coming to Jesus, but there's a few surprises that happen here. We expect another challenge Another trap put forward, even in the very question itself. Jesus, what's the most important of all things? Well, there's hundreds of commandments. How can you possibly answer that or summarize all of the law in a couple statements, in a couple phrases? And ultimately, he will in one word. But it seems that whether this man came with an intention to follow suit and trap and trick, but he seems captivated by Jesus by the way he's answering. He's starting to see his authority. May we be captivated by Jesus the same way. May we be surprised by him. Even if we've heard these words maybe hundreds of times, would we hear them again as if we never have before and become captivated 
in the person who is God, Jesus in the flesh. Another surprise, Jesus did not hesitate. He did not redirect the question. He did not challenge the premise of the question or the motivation. He did not answer the question with his own question. And if you've read through the stories or heard them, you know that he often redirects, knowing the heart, knowing the evil intent. He'll ask questions in response. He'll teach a parable instead of answering directly. Here he is, ready to answer this question directly. Maybe this is important. Maybe we should listen. I'm sure the disciples, the crowds, the religious leaders were listening closely. Was Jesus really going to answer this question? What's the most important thing of all? How could he possibly? One of the religious leaders' jobs, primary jobs as rabbis and teachers was to explain the law, was to explain the commandments. Even though there were hundreds of them, there was still uncertainty. Uh, what, what just does it mean to honor one's parents? In what situation? How? How much? How far? The Sabbath. You want to talk about Sabbath? Do no work? Rest on the Sabbath? Well, what exactly does that mean? H how much work is too much work? What are we talking about here? They had, the, the religious leaders, the teachers, had made it their, their business, like pastors often do today, to describe the law, to give commentary. And they would pass that on through their oral tradition. They were essentially expounding the law, almost adding to it, because eventually those became volumes, like the, the, the Talmud and the Mishnah, volumes of description, of commentary on how to live out the law as a faithful Jew, a faithful God follower. It's not all that different today for us. What just does it mean to be a follower of Jesus or to be godly, to become holy, to be good, to be ethical, to be moral? We've written volumes and volumes to fill libraries on these questions, on these subjects. And Jesus is about to do the opposite. Instead of expounding and offering more, he's about to summarize and declare in a few words what it is all about. He's coming back to the heart, essentially what he's always done in his ministry, which is so astonishing. As a personal illustration, in our, in our house, in our family, we've tried to be like Jesus. We've got a long, long ways to go. But as we had kids and we said, how are we going to raise up these kids to know the love of God when there's, there's so much about being a child and learning and where, where, the, where the boundaries are, where the rules are. We said, let's, let's just have one rule. Wouldn't that be easier, simple? You can ask, you can ask my kids. They're, they're running around somewhere. Uh, what is the one rule above all? It's to show love, to choose love, to do love one to another. Now, just like the Pharisees, the good Pharisees that we are, we have added a whole host of other rules because we can't seem to figure out how to do the one rule. We need commentary. No, don't hit your brother. No, don't call your sister names. This is just commentary on the one rule. Show love. Choose love. And I think we'll be spending our whole life adding commentary to that one rule. And maybe it's all commentary. Maybe that big book that you may be holding in your hand is all commentary on the one rule. 
the one law above all, the one thing that makes all go, that makes all right, that Jesus actually answers, instead of redirecting and challenging even the premise of the question, how dare you try to trap me into a corner? There's so many important things. No, he answers it. And he says it's love. If we were to compile all of, if you have a red letter version of the Bible that just is supposed to highlight the words that Jesus actually spoke, if we were to compile all the red letters, all of the words recorded of Jesus in the four gospels, maybe taking out exactly where they overlap because some of the gospel writers certainly state the same things that Jesus taught, but you were to compile them all, it's not even enough to be bound into a book. Perhaps it could be called a booklet. It could be read slowly in less than three hours. If it was on Audible, it would probably go for $7.99. All the words that Jesus ever spoke, that we have libraries filled with volumes about. And perhaps even all of that was commentary, Jesus' commentary of what it means to live the one law, to love God. He begins by quoting Deuteronomy 6.4. This would have been probably the, the, the most well-known passage of Scripture. It would be like saying the Lord's Prayer for anyone that grew up in church. If you were a Jew, you would recite this every day in your daily prayers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He begins with just declaring who God is. But then he presses and he says, this is who God is. Love. God is love. Love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater command than these. He quoted from Leviticus 19.18, that second phrase, bringing the two together, summarizing the whole law in two lines. Now, Jesus adds mind to the list, I think probably to capture his Greek-speaking audience, so influenced they were by logic and rhetoric. And that also shows us that this is not about how we love God with the different parts of who we are, although that may be a good exercise. How do we love God with our mind, with our intellect, with our understanding? Good things to think about. How do we love God with our heart, our emotion, our will? How do we love God with our soul, the essence of our being, maybe our, our personality, our character? How do we love God with our might, our strength, our hands, with what we do to serve and to bless others? Good questions, good exercise, but that's not the point. That's not what this meant. This, this was more like saying, love God with all that you are, from the hairs of your head to your pinky toes. This is every bit of you. It's not to say we're, we're three-part or four-part beings. Jesus is saying, love God with all that you are and all that you do. That's what it's all about. Your entire self. And it would be good for us to discuss, and certainly many sermons have been filled with, how do we do this? What does it look like? One to another. How do we do so individually and grow in our relationship with God? How do we do so in our community with our neighbors? But that's commentary for another day. Today, this Easter, I want us to pause and receive these words as if we've never heard them before and be astonished again. Jesus spoke these words around 2,000 years ago, but he was quoting the Shema, which is just from the Hebrew, hear, hear, O Israel, love, 
that was quoted, declared 1,500 years, or at least thousands of years, millennia, have hung on these words. Could we ever possibly hear them again, afresh, anew? Only by the work of the Spirit, I believe. Maybe an exercise to, to see if we have truly heard these words, been astonished by them, and lived them, would be to consider other words in their place. I think many of us live our lives as if Jesus answered the question differently. Jesus, what's the most important thing of all? The most important thing in life? Summarize the commands. Which one? I think some of us live as if Jesus said, trust God. Obey God. Fear God. Be holy. Pursue righteousness. Do good. Surrender your life to God. Bow before him. Confess to him. Give. All good things. All taught in scripture. All encouraged. But that's not how Jesus answered. And if we live our lives with one of those other things first, we may never get to love. But if we begin with love, I believe all those other things will flow. They will come. Is that not astonishing? Does it not set aside this faith which we inherit for millennia of any other worldly, earthly pursuit and belief and ideology and religion? That our God is love. And above all, calls us to love him in return and love one another. And Jesus did not hesitate to proclaim that. His whole life declared it. Elsewhere, you know, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. He's not diminishing the importance of his commandments to, to trust God, to believe in him, to believe in his promises, even when every evidence says don't. Faith is vital. But he says, begin with love. All else flows from that. His love first, then ours, inspired by him and returned to him, and then to one another. Perhaps one of our most famous verses, John 3, 16. Love is the reason for the crucifixion. It's the reason for the resurrection. It's the reason for all of life. For God so loved the world he gave. That's the motivation. That's where it begins. And the whole story is summarized like that. The entire book by Jesus. Doesn't mean don't look to the other rest of the passages and scriptures and study and know God more and more, but it begins and continues and returns to love. If we would really come to know the love of God, not, not just in our mind, that's a part, but in our heart and our soul, an experiential love, then all of the other commandments, all the other morality or ethics, the instructions we can see as mere commentary, maybe encouraging commentary, trying to articulate the rule of love. St. Augustine, a couple hundred years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, 
got right to the same point. And he summarized it like this, very simply, love, just love, and do what you will. You know, even the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, would not need it to be given, truly, if we could, lo- if we could receive the first one and embrace the first one. For to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, all that we are, means we come to know him. To know him means we love him. And to know him means we love what he loves. We will love his creation. We will celebrate his beauty and his work. And above all, we will love one another, those that he loves deeply, more than we can ever imagine, as his love is for us. You know, love is not only what our God invites us to, wants for us, knowing that's the way that life works. That's what it means to have the fullness of life. But it is who our God is. The Apostle John declares this in one of his letters, 1 John 4, verse 7, an extended passage that says it better than I ever could. Dear friends, so receive it as a letter to you. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we first loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice for our sin. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See that order and that flow. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We love, verse 19, because he first loved us. Love is the reason for the cross, the reason for resurrection, because love is the reason for all of life. It must inspire all. And if love is the greatest thing, the most important thing, as Jesus claims, then then love must triumph over all. Then love must give meaning for all. The Apostle Paul knew this theology also. In his famous prayer for the Ephesian church, which represents all churches everywhere, he was writing to to many different local churches, this incredible letter that he, he wrote. This is his prayer, Ephesians 3.16. I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, that's where it begins, that's where life takes hold, being rooted, beginning, and established, growing in love, you may have power together with all the saints, all those who are coming to know Jesus, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I love that phrase. should make you pause. Sounds like a contradiction. His prayer, his deepest prayer is that through the power of the Spirit, because we need help in this, is to know the love of God, how wide, how long, how high, how deep, how vast and massive it is, to know this love that surpasses knowledge which means there must be an experiential knowledge of the love of God, not just in mind. But that's his prayer. 
that you would know this love and that you would be filled then to the measure of the fullness of God. As we come to know this love, we are filled to the measure of the fullness of God. This is what it's all about, Paul says. John says, the first followers of Jesus who knew him, who heard him, who learned from him, that we would be forever growing in it. All of life will fall into place, Paul says, if we will come to know this love, we will be filled with the fullness of God. It kind of shows us a lifetime pursuit. A child can understand love as a child understands. And yet our entire life, we will be learning new facets of love, both to receive and to give. It surpasses knowledge. The great theologian A.W. Tozer lived mid ministered mid-1900s, famous alliance pastor in the Chicago area. Some of his writings still stand the test of time well. He gives encouragement and perspective as we set out on this journey of knowing God more fully and of experiencing his love. I love the way he states it. He says, yet if we would know God and for others' sake tell of what we know, we must try to speak of love. All Christians have tried, but none has ever done it very well. Here I am, humbled again, Lord. I can do no more justice to that awesome and wonder-filled theme of the love of God than a child can grasp a star. Still, by reaching toward the star, the child may call attention to it and even indicate the direction one must look to see it. So as I stretch my heart toward the high, shining love of God, someone who has not before known about it may be encouraged to look up and have hope. I pray that that would be the essence of my ministry. From these kinds of moments to the other ways that I live and move and have my being. That I would be like a child reaching up to the high, shining love of God. And that in so doing, others who may not have heard or experienced the love of God may come to know it and to receive it. Perhaps we're all but children reaching for the stars, but we're invited to. We can see the stars, the light they give, the beauty they have. They can guide us across oceans, but we'll never grasp them. Yet we're invited to try. And perhaps when our arms grow tired of reaching and we all grow tired in our human weakness, perhaps that's where you are today. You feel like you have reached for the love of God and pursued him and you're tired and you're weary because he hasn't met you in the way that you had hoped or it feels like it's been a long time. Perhaps simply today, instead of reaching more, you would receive with open hands the gift of his love for you, that you would see the countenance of God as a good, good Father who loves you deeply. 
I want to use a different word. I hope that everyone here has heard so often that God loves you, that Jesus loves you. But has it lost its awe or its power? Are we astonished by that? Do you know that God delights in you? Would you use that term? Do you know that God, whenever you draw into his presence, however you do so spiritually or make your awareness to him or come into a place like this with maybe even without a thought, but as you come into a place like this, the thought starts to turn through the word that is shared or a song that is sung, and you're, you're bringing your countenance to him, your, your attention to him, and perhaps you, you're hesitant to do that at all because of the week you've lived or the month or the years. Do you know that even in this moment, in every moment that you attune yourself to God, he delights in you. His face toward you lights up. He is filled with compassion and joy as his first response to you. That's his primary posture to you. I know how difficult this is. Some of you are squirming, maybe just because the chairs are uncomfortable. Because this is not the way you've been taught who God is. And for those of us that live our lives answering the question differently, fear God, that he's a scary God or he's going to bring judgment or wrath on you. We have not heard the words of Jesus or received them. God's first posture toward you is love. Luke 15, Jesus summarized the whole story of God in a parable. Here he does it in a direct command with a word, maybe the most par famous parable of all, the parable of the prodigal child, the one who lived with his father and his brother and had all, had an inheritance coming to him, a very wealthy father, but he wanted to do it his own way. Most of you probably know the story, and he demanded his inheritance early. The father gave, and he took, and he left, and he ran, and he ultimately squandered all of that inheritance. Eventually, he came to a place of repentance, return, coming back. Maybe, he thought, if I could go back, my father would welcome me in. I know not as a son. I'm not worthy of it. I've squandered everything. I've hurt him too much. Maybe he would welcome me as a servant because at least then I would have shelter and food. So he did know something of the character of his father, but he had not yet begun to understand the depth of his love, his delight, his compassion, and his joy. And this story is meant to describe the whole gospel. It's the picture of all that God has done. We are all the child in different ways at different times, running, distrusting, leaving, maybe returning and doing that cycle again and again. Luke 15, 20, hear this. If there's anything you receive today on this Easter, this is the way that Jesus chose to describe God and his love. This is his countenance to his son. 
his child who is returning. While he was still a far way off, the father saw him. That means he was looking. He was watching. He was waiting. And he was filled with compassion. That's his first response. And he runs to him and throws his arms around him and kisses him. The son said to him, Father, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. This son of mine was dead, but is alive again. He was lost and is now found. So they began to celebrate. Notice the order here. Before the child could ever even get his confession out, his repentance out, which I think was a good thing to do, representing his heart of how he hurt his father. But before he could even say anything, regardless of that, what is the posture of the father? This is his posture to you. This is God's posture to you. As you come into his presence, regardless of how long it's been or how far you've run, he delights. He brightens up. He runs to you. He embraces you. He celebrates. He sets the feast and the celebration in motion. The son tries to get out his confession in that point. It's almost like he says, no, not now. But well, we can get to that later. But right now, quick, celebrate. And if that's not the way you see God as you attune to him, we're believing a different message, an out-of-order message. Love comes first. Delight comes first. Joy comes first. You're here. You're here. Welcome. Embrace comes first. Could you receive that this Easter? Could you receive this gift? He's offering the gift of resurrection to his son. What does he say? He was dead, but now he's alive. He's home. He's back where he was meant to be. This is his identity. He's offering the gift of resurrection to you. Life, through whatever death you may have walked through, life, because of his love. Are you coming home? You're still a far ways off. He sees you. He will run to you. If you put one foot in front of the other, he will run to you. That's the gospel. And he will offer life to his child, life to the full. Now, today, and forever. There's a right time for confession, God, I've hurt you. Oh, Father, express that. If that's your heart, express it. But just know that flows first from the love and delight of the Father. That's why it's a gift. Repentance, turning from a way of life to another, is such a gift. 
Receive it today. Receive the gift and grace of God. And begin to love him in return with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Could we all stretch out our heart toward the high shining love of God today in response?